Episode, Episode 10. 10. Remember what a big deal turning 10 was, right? Birthdays in general, but 10, 10 was real. 10 was a march into teenage years. It meant that you were exiting whatever childhood was. It meant that the merch, the gifts were going to probably get a little bit better, a little bit better. You started getting things like cash. Occasionally, your parents would let you watch a PG-13, and then when mom was out of the house, an R-rated movie. I'm projecting right there because my parents were divorced by the time I was eight. Painful story. Scarred me the rest of my life. Uh, Thanks, Dad. Anyways, 10. Uh, This episode is not as important, but it is episode 10, and it's important in one sense that I think this is our best interview ever, and we've crowded out a lot of room for this interview and are cutting out some of the other stuff we typically do uh, and are just going to do office hours and then bust into our interview with Sam Harris philosopher, neuroscientist, and a legitimate philosopher and neuroscientist has uh, undergraduate and doctorates in those fields. He's also the author of five New York Times bestsellers. Uh, I was on his podcast several weeks ago because I'm kind of a big deal, kind of a big deal. And this guy is a scary blue flame thinker. And he has one of those tricks. I don't know if he does it where he he has this very like warming lullaby voice, and he speaks very slowly, Scott, and you just sort of hang on his every word, but his words are very thoughtful. My sense is he really kind of looks at issues and wrestles them. Anyways, I, I just thought this was one of our better, if not best, interviews that I've been involved in a long time, so we wanted to give it its full purchase. So before we get started... A quick reminder, as I whore myself out in linear podcasting or nonlinear podcasting, tonight, uh, our third episode of No Mercy, No Malice TV show on Vice TV, tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, Aswat Damodaran, uh, who I think is the best teacher in the world talking about markets and if they're overvalued or not, will also be talking about media and dating in a post-COVID world, and I'll be doing uh, a rant on the biggest unlock, which we've talked about here, and that is Amazon's vaccination of their supply chain. So with that, with that, let's bust right into office hours. Here we go. Here we go. First question. Hey, Prof G, Ryan Conde here calling in from Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I wanted to ask you the question around all these stimulus packages. So there's a lot of numbers being thrown around, a lot of trillions of dollars. You highlighted it a little bit in a previous podcast, but ultimately, what does this mean for our kids and grandkids? You know, Can you just really print trillions and trillions of dollars? What are the long-term effects from it? Everybody's talking about the short-term and saving the economy in the short-term. I don't understand what happens long-term. Please set some light on that, or at least what your, your two cents are in terms of how does this affect us long-term? Thanks. So Ryan from Salt Lake, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess you are Mormon, that you're a white Mormon dude living in Salt Lake, and that you're a good skier. Unbelievable inappropriate stereotypes. I feel triggered. By the way, by the way, I fucking love Mormons. Uh, I was raised by a single mother, and the Church of Latter-day Saints in Westwood took me in, my best friend Brett. Uh, is or was and is a Mormon. And he and I hung out. I played on their sports teams and they were nothing but wonderful and generous to me. And I found that a focus on family and an absence of alcohol and a focus on sports and country and success and education that 
there's this cartoon of Mormons uh, on cable TV of being polygamous and strange, and I'm sure that that is a part of it. But the part I was subjected to were these incredibly generous, gracious, loving people. Uh, so Ryan, uh, anyways, uh, no idea if you're Mormon. I'm making an assumption because you live in Salt Lake. But anyway, that's not your question. The stimulus package. I think the stimulus package should be more accurately called a hate crime against future generations. And that is we have decided that we are going to steal time and work from our unborn children and grandchildren because money, if you think about it, is nothing but the transfer of work and time from one entity to the other. If I give you money, I'm effectively reducing the amount of time and work you need to apply to other means of getting the requisite funds to buy food, et cetera. It's a transfer of time and work. And we have decided that we want our kids and grandkids to spend less time with their kids, to have less free time, such that we can flatten the curve of rich people here. It is outrageous, in my viewpoint, what is going on. This is Madoff times 2000. They didn't want to put Representative Katie Porter on the oversight committee of the Democrats. Why? Representative Porter brings this incredible attribute called math to their oversight. And we're going to find out that this was an enormous abuse of the Commonwealth. The impact, supposedly, and I don't fully understand this, uh, I was a graduate student instructor in micro and macroeconomics, but I still don't fully understand how you can print this much money and not have inflation. What you do have is asset inflation, but product prices are going down, which holds inflation kind of steady. But at some point, when the interest on our debt, if interest rates go up, and at some point they will, supersedes everything else uh, in terms of discretionary spending. Right now, the interest payments on our debt are greater than their, the cost of our military then it crowds out all discretionary spending and all uh, spending and investment we can make in things like infrastructure or education, and you end up with a shitty society. Or you end up like Japan, where it doesn't grow for 20 or 30 years. When I went to business school, uh, graduate institutions are the ultimate luxury item. Who could afford the luxury item in the early 90s? Japanese. 20% of my business school class were kids from Japan. Now, 20% of the class, or 11% of the class actually at NYU Stern, are Chinese nationals because they are printing money. They're killing it. And Japan has been in sort of recession, stagflation, whatever you want to call it, low growth for 20 years or 30 years. And we might be doing that by borrowing money against the future, potentially setting ourselves up for reckless deficits. Uh, so I find it uh, an absolute, uh, I find it criminal. Now, the economic impact, we'll see. If it saves us from a depression, you could argue that it was worthwhile. I think we could have saved us from a depression with a lot less reckless spending than this, a lot more effective spending, specifically putting money in the hands of households. But the fear, Ryan, the fear is this results in inflation and such extraordinary debt, it crowds out the type of investments we need to maintain our culture of innovation. And that is investments in infrastructure, investments in innovation, investments in research. Thank you for the call, Ryan. Love the Mormons. Love the Mormons. Next question. Hey, Scott. Deb here in Toronto. Big fan. Thanks for all that you do. Um, got a question for you. So you've spoken a lot about new investments in the home due to more work from home, live from home, exercise from home, be at home, whatever, life situation. So I buy a fancier TV, a nicer couch, whatever. What, uh, what do you think happens with the smart home? The smart home had huge market promise a few years ago, and the reality hasn't exactly panned out. Some tech one-offs have done well in smart access, smart thermostats, smart speakers, but the grand vision of a smart home, a connected, intelligent home, never really emerged. 
Do you think that this new surge of focus on the home might enable new investments in the smart home, or will people be satisfied with basic consumer home improvements? I guess my question is, are there any key new use cases powered by a smart, connected home that are now valuable as we shift more of our professional and social lives home? And if so, do you think that the tech giants will once again focus on the smart home? Thank you. Deb from Toronto, a very thoughtful question. So I would push back and I would say the future of this smart hub home brought to you by IBM or Cisco or all these shitty little uh, bucket shop companies, Control 4 and all this shit that has confused your home. And if you buy a nice home, you pay some uh, what's called a trunk slammer to come and wire your house for a hundred grand such that he has to come out every two weeks because the fucking thing doesn't work. And I speak from experience here. I think it's happening, but I think the smart hub is now brought to you by Amazon, specifically Alexa. And that is, I think voice is taking over the home and is the smart hub, or the hub is in the cloud, if you will, and Alexa is is the agent for it in the home. And if you think about this, there's been very few missteps on the part of Apple, probably their biggest misstep of the last 20 years was seeding voice to Alexa. Uh, the home is so dramatically important for the reasons you talked about. We're spending more time at home. We're going to spend more money in our home, more work at home. But it's really the the thing that's unique about the home is it's the only place where our smartphone is not a fifth appendage. And that is our digital interface to the world is not through our smartphone, uh, but it is going to be through our voice. We don't walk around with a phone in our pocket typically at home or in our hand, but we're starting to see voice permeate into all kinds of other areas. And you could see how this will uh, be kind of the helm of the bobsled for healthcare. Alexa, you know, get me an appointment at a dermatologist. Alexa, uh, around food ordering, leaving town for two weeks, uh, stop all grocery delivery. Alexa, dinner party for eight, one is a, a vegan. Um, as of the second quarter of 2019, US smart speaker ownership rose to 76 million. And about two-thirds of U.S. households now have a smart device or a voice device. We're starting to see payments. Uh, and the market is supposed to be uh, about $620 billion, so the same size as groceries. So U.S. grocery is about to be the same size as is smart home. So smart home is booming, uh, Deb. I think Alexa is the early winner. Uh, Amazon has more open job uh, positions in their voice group than Google does at all of its firm, which gives you a sense of the kind of staggering investment that Amazon is trying to make in voice. I mean, Amazon, it just blows my mind, it, whether it's cloud, whether it's e-commerce, and oh, the technology of the future, voice, uh, they're number one. So it's only gonna get bigger from here. And if I were coming out of college or an investor, I would be trying to figure out a million different ways to get into the voice ecosystem. Deb from Toronto, love the Canadians. Love the Canadians. Next question. Hey, Scott, my name is Scott. And I'm one of your Canadian friends up in Calgary, Alberta. I've heard your takes on the changes to education and how distance learning could become more popular because of COVID-19. But are we overlooking the critical socialization that happens in schools? How do we create these opportunities for socialization while moving to a more digital education delivery model? Wow, that's a big one. All right. Thank you, Scott from Calgary, another Canadian. So uh, it depends on what you're talking about. Uh, socialization for K through 12 is paramount. Uh, I have uh, two sons and 
one of them is is struggling, is not living his best life right now. And I think a lot of it has to do with the lack of socialization, that he really misses his friends at school and misses some of the boundaries and behavioral modification that being around other kids sort of trains. And uh, I worry that a lot of kids are at home and their development has been stunted or arrested, cauterized, whatever fancy word I can say. Um, so I think it's a big deal, K through 12. And I think it's part of the reason that majority, unlike most universities, which I do not believe will open in person, I do think you're seeing uh, K through 12 schools as they are in France reopen and they're enduring a certain amount of affection. Supposedly, France has already identified 60 COVID-19 infections from the reopening of schools, but it basically said it's worth it. We're going to be doing a lot of those measurements around what level of infection is worth it. And I think school K through 12 opening, most societies are going to decide that it's worth it. There was such a, a really jarring image of these beautiful French kids in a classroom, all with a mask and a face shield on. And you just thought, wow, um, that was just jarring about what this has come to. It was so sad. And then all I had to do was think about, okay, there's that. And then French kids, you know, are 18 or 19, you know, whatever it was seven years ago, were put in uniform to go dodge bullets or not. So I guess it's all a matter of perspective uh, and, and, and we'll get used to this and this too shall pass. But the socialization is hugely important. At the college level, the socialization is a bit of a luxury item, and that is uh, people who have cars and can drink and can get around are going to socialize. They're going to figure or understand technology. They'll figure it out on their own, but it won't be as safe or joyous or fun place to socialize as at the Rose Bowl when I watch UCLA beat USC or go to parties or in the dorms. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's going to become a bit of an accoutrement of wealthy people. And I think there'll be certain universities that put in place the protocols and the distancing and have the resources for the traditional fall leaves, dead poet society-like experience. But the real damage here, and we got to think about a socialization among our younger students, and they will, I think they will get that as we decide to send them back because uh, uh, the risks are worth it. Universities are going to be hugely disrupted because the experience part will be severely diminished which will lend people to focus on the education part. And what we are realizing via Zoom is that the education has been vastly overrated. So uh, socialization, uh, hugely important. We'll get back there with K through 12. The experience will be likely diminished and uh, catalyze greater scrutiny at universities, which will, is gonna result in enormous disruption at the university level. Sorry I was so long-winded. Go Canada! We'll be right back. So you've heard for years, it's important to have a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, that kind of thing. But if you've ever looked at a breakdown of the most successful portfolios, you'll typically see a diversified set of real estate. So why isn't one of the first asset classes you consider when you're looking to diversify? Simple. It hasn't been available to investors like you and me until now. Thanks to Fundrise. They make it easy for all investors to diversify by building you a portfolio of institutional quality real estate investments. So whether you're just starting to invest in real estate or looking to add more, our friends at Fundrise have you covered. Here's how. Fundrise is an investing platform that makes investing in high quality, high potential real estate as easy as investing in your favorite stock or mutual fund. Fundrise's teams of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy to use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via asset updates. The platform manages more than $1 billion in assets for 130,000-plus investors to date. Start building your better portfolio today. Get started at fundrise.com slash profg to have your first 90 days of advisory work fees waived. 
That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash Prof G to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. Fundrise.com slash Prof G. It's difficult to find the perfect Father's Day gift, but since over a third of men don't buy their own underwear, hmm, did not know that. I would have thought it was even more. I'm not sure I've ever bought my own underwear. It's likely your dad is in need of a refresh. No one deserves to be hanging out in ratty underwear, so upgrade him to Tommy John. Now with enhanced designs that are twice as durable, super breathable, and way more comfortable than anything he's worn before. I like Tommy John. It feels innovative. Uh, I just feel good in Tommy John. I don't know, good fabrics, kind of like, I don't know, the apple or the Lululemon of underwear or the, everything's the apple of something, isn't it? Anyways, Tommy John is offering their best Father's Day deal ever with 25% off site-wide, including easy to gift sets that you can order straight from your phone directly to dad's door. Whether you're in the hunt for lounge pants, lazy day joggers, or the softest Zoom ready tees and polos you or dad has ever worn, Tommy John has you covered. Remember to get you're ordering before June 17th to ensure that your gift arrives before Father's Day. Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Deliver comfort to dad's door with 25% off site-wide at tommyjohn.com slash prof. That's P-R-O-F. That's tommyjohn.com slash prof for 25% off site-wide. See site for details. We love your questions. If you'd like to submit one, please email a voice recording to officehours at section4.com. And now on to Sam Harris. Russell's complex issues down to the ground. This is our best interview yet. Sam, where do we find you? Uh, I am uh, at home, hunkered down for, what is this, month number three? Let's bust bust right into it. Post-corona, when you think about nations, economic constructs, and norms, who do you think are the biggest winners and losers, or where are the biggest changes going to register in our society post-corona? Well, I think the biggest loser, I mean, I guess this could be a symptom of my being too close to the problem, but the, the biggest loser is the United States at the moment. I mean, when you just look at the utter failure to help lead the world out of this crisis, I mean, we're we're the most conspicuous uh, case of just ineptitude in the face of the crisis. We had, conservatively, we had a full month to prepare. We really had probably two to prepare. We knew this was coming. Even if you're going to be, you know, generous and say this wasn't clear until the end of January, it was it was absolutely clear then and we spent February just bickering over politics and trying to relearn basic facts of epidemiology and we watched the complete implosion of our institutions and I mean and, and institutions that you wouldn't think would be vulnerable to implosion and, and would be would would stand totally above the fray of politics, you know, like like the CDC. I mean, the CDC still can't get its act together. We still have, you know, Dr. Burks, who's running the the COVID task force, and she's another one of these characters who, you know, for whatever her virtues previously, she seems to have come into Trump's orbit. You know, she's losing, it seems, uh, integrity and gravitas by the the second which happens to everyone in Trumpistan. Uh, but you know, she's saying she can't trust anything that comes out of the CDC. I mean, this is this is just 
astonishing that we're in this situation. So yeah, I would I would put the US as the place we really need to understand what happened here. Maybe, you know, once we have the luxury of being able to look back and, and do a, a postmortem on it. But it's quite alarming how fully we failed to perform here on, on, on every level. What do you think are the long-term, are there scars? Is this an opportunity for reflection? What happens? Let's, let's buy into your notion, and I think most people do, that we did not handle this well. What impact does that have on us? What are the what are the unlocks that might be waiting for us as we come to grips with some of the ugly truths here? Or does this just permanently scar us and kind of signal the end of, you know, that beacon on a hill, if you will? Well, everything depends on what we do from now on. You know, I mean, there are obviously some very important dates on the calendar. I mean, what we do in November around the election is of enormous significance. If we double down on Trump, you know, despite who he is and who we know him to be and, and the last few years and the last few months, how he's handled this crisis, that will be one world. That'll be a very different world than one in which we don't reelect him because we recognize the, the, the gravity of the risk, you know, his incompetence, you know, if nothing else, imposes on all of us. Um, you know, it's, it's just a massive question mark. I, mean, I, th- I think we have a real opportunity here to create a new social contract and to recognize that there are whole parts of our society that need a significant overhaul. And, you know, we, we need to create a, a digital infrastructure Manhattan project that two years out, we could look back and say, well, this was an enormous opportunity and we seized it and we we rectified many problems that were problems already. And this just, you know, this just hastened the coming wave of, of, you know, political discontent and, and uh, you know, forced us to deal with things like wealth inequality, uh, et cetera. But, you know, I'm worried we're not going to be able to do it because political partisanship and social media and just the, the ubiquitous distrust in institutions like, you know, the, the, the media at the moment, this has shattered our shared reality. We, we just don't share a reality now. And it, it certainly hasn't helped that the left. I mean, so you have you know two ends of this spectrum. Obviously, I mean, you have what you know pornographers like Rupert Murdoch and Alex Jones and Trump himself have done to our public conversation, and and the harm has been enormous. And all the lies and the conspiracy theories they just make our situation very precarious. But the left, for its part, and and by left here, I don't mean the extreme left. I mean even the New York Times has become unhinged in its own way. And this, you know, we have this new religion of wokeness that has has made real journalism very hard to protect. And, you know, I feel like I'm, we're watching Notre Dame burn Mm -hmm. and the right is busy swapping in gasoline for water in the hoses. And the left is complaining that there are not enough women or people of color in the fire department. And I mean, it's not quite the same error, but you know, both sides are making it almost impossible to marshal an intelligent response to very real problems. You talked about certain sectors. There's an opportunity for overhaul. Where would you start? Give, give us some example of sectors that require an overhaul, and what do you mean by that? Well, we're just encountering, and, and again, I'm, I don't have any special. You know, privileged access to this. I just I'm just reading the news, like you know most people, but it is just 
astounding that we just haven't fully modernized. I mean, you, you, you know, the, you and I spend a lot of time noticing what Silicon Valley does, and we, and it, it's very easy to to sense that we've made much more progress than we have. But when you look at just you know the the computer infrastructure of institution like the CDC, right? I mean, it, it's clearly this is not being run like Google or Facebook or any, you know, actually high tech, you know, profitable company. It's just, we just have not invested in a 21st century infrastructure. I mean, the fact that we can't even produce cotton swabs at this point when we need them uh, suggests that so many things are broken. So this has been a, a stress test that we have failed um, I mean, with the fact that we can't figure out how to get money to people in a way more sophisticated and more timely than mailing them checks once they show us their tax returns, right? I mean, we're, it's just mm-hmm. we're not even targeting the right people. So we need to to think this through really from you know the, the studs inward. And it, it does strike me as a massive opportunity if we could get out of our own way and stop I mean, the only way to seize the opportunity, obviously, is to be able to talk about a shared set of facts, right? We have to acknowledge the same reality. And if we can't actually have a conversation about what's happening in the world, uh, it's very hard to see how we converge on on real solutions. And, and that's it. on the most basic level, our conversation is failing. And, you know, obviously, I locate Trump at the at the center of that bottleneck, but you know that the problem is is also far larger than just him. If we try to go to the root cause or one of the root causes, despite pandemics having killed more people than wars or violence, we've delegitimized and defunded our government institutions. Isn't it the very root of this that we're sort of you get you get the government and the institutions you deserve? Haven't we sort of lost the script in terms of? human and financial capital allocation isn't isn't it don't we need a fundamental rethink around what's important and how we allocate capital isn't that isn't that a decent place to start yeah yeah well and and we sh- we need to understand how difficult that is to do or 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 how badly placed we are to feel the need to do that i mean we we are social primates that harbor some rather obvious biases, and, and they're the biases that we can only correct for once we recognize them and recognize how non-optimal they are. I mean, so we, for instance, we we heavily discount the significance of of the future, you know, our future, even our own future. I mean, so we heavily discount the the well-being of our future selves, but we we discount the the well-being of our our children in the future. Uh, we we heavily discount the well-being of people who are far away from us, just you know physically far away in space, uh, as though that had any ethical significance. And pandemics are also just much harder for us to marshal an, an emotional response to because you're talking about an invisible threat as opposed to something that is that we can see and and really intuitively understand the the, the physics of you know I mean there, there are people who are still trying to get their head around the germ theory of disease right it's just not intuitive that this invisible thing uh, that's you know whatever it is one four hundredth the the width of a, a human hair can you know spell the difference between you being able to breathe and not so we know we're badly place to respond to this kind of thing. And when you're asking people to make significant 
sacrifice, you know, or at least perceived sacrifice on, you know, on some level, it's just, these are just numbers that, you know, people don't have a, a strong feeling about. But you know, when you're saying we need to spend, you know, an order of magnitude more, uh, you know, every year to prepare for this, what seems like a hypothetical threat, it's asking a lot of people who are, you know, captivated by the one story that has a an identifiable protagonist, right? You know, they, they don't really care about hundreds of thousands of people suffering a specific fate, but they really do care about a little girl or boy who gets, you know, stuck up in a tree or falls down a well. And so we just know that our emotional hardware is really badly coupled to our ability to reason effectively about you know how we should prioritize risk, and and we and we just have to figure out how to correct for that. And people can't reliably correct for that on a minute by minute basis within their own lives. We have to correct for it in a kind of sidebar conversation we have with ourselves, and then enshrine that wisdom into our laws and our tax codes and our institutions. So so we don't have to rethink it, or at least our rethinking of it happens at the level of you know, serious, sober people bringing to bear the best arguments and the best data on each one of these topics. We're just not in that spot most of the time. And we're, uh, uh, on social media, we're almost never in that spot. And we have a president who doesn't even know that spot exists. And so we our, our public conversation about risk and priorities and what is happening in the world and what is likely to happen is at a level that is just tracking facts almost by accident. Do you think there might be opportunity? Let's take Alex Jones as an example. He His message resonates with X number of people, but because it is so inflammatory and creates so much rage, which translates to engagement for a platform, and their business model is based on engagement, which backward integrates to content that is rage-worthy, thereby Facebook has an economic interest in taking that content that registers traction of X and amplifying it for him. Yeah. Do you think that we would we would both respect First Amendment rights, we would give people the audience they deserve instead of the audience they're getting because they're enraging people and put in place some sort of taxation system or some sort of mandate around a business model where we'd say, okay, we respect First Amendment rights, but we don't respect companies or we're going to tax companies that have this emission or these emissions or these externalities where they are giving the most outrageous, the most enraging content, more oxygen than they have earned on the merits of their own ideas. Do you think there's a potential solution in there? Yeah, well, I do think most of what ails us is a story of bad incentives, right? If, if we can work out the incentives, we have canceled most of what seems to be wrong with human nature. And so, yeah, I mean, you've just hit upon what I really put at the bottom of, of most of our uh, digital problems, which is the the advertising model and the bad incentives it sets up. So, yeah, I, you know, I think the, the principle of clickbait and the need for even the most respectable organs of journalism to rely to some degree, I mean, even if they have subscribers, they're still, still you know, rowing in two boats and, and trying to extract as much ad revenue as possible in most cases. I think that need has created the, the, the truly perverse incentive, uh, which as you say, has, has led to, to amplifying messages that shouldn't be amplified and just keeping the outrage machine running. So yeah, I, mean, I, I do think that ultimately 
if we have a, a healthy internet at some point, it will be because we have recognized that you, on some level, you get what you pay for, and you know the Netflix model wins over the the Facebook model. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, again, the path from here to there is is going to be bumpy. So imagine imagine Trump gets reelected. Where do you think we are in two to three years? Where do you think America's position in the world is? Where do you think the notion of a liberal democracy, when I say liberal democracy, I don't mean progressive, but the purposeful insertion of institutions that are meant to slow us down? Have you thought through different scenarios? Well, it, in truth, it, it's almost too depressing to think about. I, mean, I think if we reelect him, we will have put, on some level, the, the final nail in the coffin uh, on American influence in the world. I mean, we will just have told the rest of civilized humanity to go fuck itself and declared ourselves masochists and, and sadists, you know, simultaneously uh, with respect to the, the most important problems that humanity faces, right? I mean, we've basically, well, we, we were basically saying, all right, we don't care about climate change. We don't even believe in climate change. Uh, and even if we did, we're, we're we care more about you know seventy five thousand coal miners uh, than we care about uh, the billions of people who will suffer its impacts you know first and and worst you know every other problem of consequence both those we know about or should know about or should have known about like you know the problem of emerging pandemics um, the wars we may be tempted to fight in the near term I and mean, it seems fairly clear that we're stumbling into a, a cold war, at least with China, uh, so that, you know, the, what kinds of minds do you want to have in charge when it, it comes time to wonder whether we're now in a shooting war or soon to be in a shooting war with, with China? Putting Trump and the kinds of people he attracts into his orbit in charge for all of that, you know, a, a second time, you know, the, the sky's the limit on, on how bad that could all get. But I think you know, it'll just be clear, I think, to the rest of the world that they have lost their main collaborator, right? I mean, we were, when, when Trump came on board, we were the lone superpower. Now we're, we're seeing the rise of China in, in several ways. At least it's, you know, it's aspiring to challenge our status as a superpower. Uh, it's certainly challenging our influence in, in many ways, and we're in a kind of Thucydides trap with them, or at least there's concern that we that we are. You have a, you know this this weakening power, which is us, and, and a rising power. And as Graham Allison points out in his book by that title, you know, the history has is fairly gloomy with respect to the the range of outcomes there. So again, having a a dangerously selfish and unethical and almost supernaturally dishonest imbecile in charge for a second term, given the kinds of challenges we face, and given that he's, his track record has only been to alienate our friends and to embolden our enemies. I mean, just doubling down on that is an error, a political error of such catastrophic proportions. You know, I, I, I have no idea what the world looks like in a few years if we do that. It's just, it's really just awful. You're, I'm not, I, I am definitely a half glass empty kind of guy. And I think you're more right in the middle, at least when I listen to your podcast. Mm. Do you think there's opportunity for a younger generation, the Gen Z and millennials who are supposed to be so fragile that they are observing what's going on here and might see the cooperation and that our superpowers of species being cooperation and that 
pandemics don't care about border walls? Do you think we might be maturing a generation that approaches problems differently? Uh, I, I don't know if I would think of it in in terms of those cohorts. I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm not. I don't feel in touch enough with each of them to generalize about how they might meet this challenge. But I, I, mean, I do worry if you, if you put in those terms, I worry that there's a there's just a pervasive lack of respect for institutions and institutional knowledge and the kind of conversation we need to have with ourselves, you know, both in the present and with respect to the the past and future. I mean, we're there's no group of human beings that can get a lot of things done, right? I mean, you know, any thousand group of thousand people, it's still hard to get much of anything that civilization requires done. If we reboot successfully, it will be because we have modernized our institutions to a degree that you know they're agile enough and they're they're wise enough to respond to whatever our top ten problems really are, not just what deranged people might think they are, right? So you know we have to get the religious fundamentalists sidelined for the these important conversations, and we have to get the wokeness police sidelined, and 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 we 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 need to, you know just to actually have honest conversations about real risk. And what it's going to take to mitigate it, and so I mean, we you know forget it. We're in the middle of a pandemic that is cratering the global economy. Uh, just look at this as an opportunity cost, right? What are all the problems that have not gone away that were still enormous problems in December before anyone outside of China had heard of of this novel coronavirus? All these problems are still here. I mean, the problem of you know I, I've got a few podcasts I recorded on. The threat of nuclear war that I haven't even released because I, you know, who wants to hear about nuclear war right now? But I've, you know, I'm sitting on two hours of of conversation with William Perry, who, you know, is has never been more worried about the threat of us having an accidental nuclear war. I mean, this is like, you know, in his world, we're in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis essentially, and we had no one has the bandwidth to even think about it. It's amazing the situation we're in and what is actually taking up our bandwidth in terms of our public conversation. And so I don't have an answer for you, much less a, a hopeful one. But you know, there is no, there, in principle, there is no limit to how creatively and intelligently we could respond to these problems. I mean, the, the only barrier is honest reflection and conversation and a sorting out of our priorities. I mean, we have all of the intellectual resources we need to solve our problems. And if we don't have them right now, we can get them. You know, the final chapter of human progress is not only not written, it's not even imagined. We, we, we seem capable of dropping the baton, right? I mean, if you look at human history mm -hmm. as a relay race of sorts, where, you know, each generation passes the baton to the next, and we keep racing into a, a future of, you know, again, unimaginable progress, right? I mean, there's just no telling how good things could get for us if we sort out our norms and shore up our, our politics and let science do its thing and just celebrate human ingenuity and creativity uh, in a context of you know, real political freedom and collaboration. There is no limit to how good things can get. Uh, we're on the cusp of something here. I mean, we're living through a time. It's a unique time. It's a time where we do have the capacity to ruin everything. Now, that was not true 100 years ago. 100 years ago, no one had the capacity to ruin everything. 
uh, as our technology gets more and more powerful and we don't get commensurately more wise, we get into this, this unhappy bottleneck where the risk of us screwing up everything is growing and we remain unchanged psychologically and socially, or we even, you know, in, in recent years, we seem to have regressed. And we find ourselves in the middle of a vast psychological experiment with things like social media, where we're just, you know, rolling the dice with new ways of interacting, where the outcome of the experiment is completely uncertain, right? And so, yeah, we do have to get through this period. But on the other side of it, uh, you know, I'm incredibly optimistic about, you know, what awaits us if we navigate this precipice well in the next two decades, say. Uh, but we're, um, this seems like a very important year. I mean, there's, there's no question. So let's talk about that important year. And do you, or have you run across any of your guests that you've had, uh, you feel have had some novel ideas, big or small, but, you know, a, a service core, a rethinking of tax structure, a decision to never go back to the emissions levels we were at, um, any smaller big ideas that you think we should be actively considering, trusting that the world isn't what it is, it's what we make of it coming out of this? Well, there are many things in the air here that surround the problem of wealth inequality and its political consequences, which I, I more and more, I mean, you know, long before COVID, I was beginning to worry about wealth inequality. Just, just when, when is it that it will become politically and ethically unsustainable in our society. And, and I'm concerned that this pandemic will accentuate the problem before it resets it somehow. And, and there, there are ways to reset it that can be incredibly painful. And there, and there are ways to reset it that I think could inspire everyone. And you know, obviously, we need to find that, that other path. So yeah, I mean, I, for instance, I, I was speaking to this uh, Yale professor, Daniel Markovitz, uh, about uh, Meritocracy. He's got this book, The Meritocracy Trap. I haven't released that podcast yet, but that's coming. And you know, he's he's just putting into question the, the whole notion of meritocracy. It's a fairly deep criticism of of just what's happening and what has been happening for now many decades in higher education and the way in which it, you know it has become a machine for accentuating inequality mm -hmm. uh, and the need to to reset some of our norms there. And yeah, I, I, mean, I, do, I do think that if we can't get to a place where most of us feel like there's a, um, you know, they have skin in the game and they have uh, an upside for the success of our society, if we can't get there, I, I just don't see how we solve any of these other problems. And so inequality and, and a, the perceived lack of opportunity, even where it's, you know, even where it may exist, insofar as it seems not to exist, um, that's a, the, the nearest pain point I think we we need to come out of this crisis having solved. Yeah, it feels as if one of the most disappointing things, and we, we knew the numbers, but to see it happen is especially jarring that in the wealthiest nation in the world, half our population can't go 30, 60, or much less 90 days without a paycheck, without feeling food insecure. Hmm. You just think, well, how did we get here? How did it happen such that People are are living on such a, a razor's edge in the wealthiest economy or in the wealthiest uh, country in history. Is there an opportunity? So I've been thinking a lot about education. Is there an opportunity that we might see the rivers 
of the of the flight out of private schools. You're in Los Angeles, right, Sam? Mm. So Windward, Westlake, you know, Harvard Westlake, these private schools have seen. I went to university high school, public high school in West Los Angeles. I was there in the late 70s when we started busing and integration, and basically any white kid with wealthy parents left. And it started, I think, a downward spiral of a lack of empathy and kind of set the stage for a continued ca- or, or greater casting of our society. Is there an opportunity that if, it's, if we're relegated to Zoom classes, that people might decide at $48,000 a year, whatever Winward or Harvard-Westlake charges for Zoom classes, that there might be a reversion to public schools? Because if you're going to get mediocre Zoom classes for your 15-year-old, you might as well pay free versus 48,000. Is there an opportunity that we might see the rivers of flight of not only financial capital, but human engagement from the public school system where income classes and demographic groups mixed, which has, uh, I think you would agree, a lot of benefit. Could we see a huge reinvestment in our public schools? Well, I would certainly hope so. I mean, I think just a first principles approach to this could have landed us here long ago. I mean, it just we have to get to the point where we, where we realize that there is nothing more important than education, right? And and you know the the right then the question is you know what is the right kind of education? But the idea that teaching kids is a low status job and a, and a low a low wage job in our society, I mean that's just that is the 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 founding travesty here, right? That that begets so many other problems. I and mean, we we need to figure out how to flip. This situation where it is a highly competitive, coveted job attracting the, you know, some of the most talented people in our society, and you know, I, I don't know how we we get there, but the the idea that there's so little investment made uh, in education, and it's not to say that we don't spend a lot of money on it, but it's it, the money we spend seems to be spent terribly in many cases. So there's there's a real opportunity for innovation. But yeah, I mean, I, your initial comment is about just how close people are to to being in extremis here financially. I mean, one of the details that was shocking to come out of the the first weeks of lockdown was that the real problems in closing schools is not the fact that we will then be failing to educate kids or or educate them well thereafter. It's that having schools open is the only thing that guarantees a significant number of kids a decent meal that day in our society. The way we think about inequality and try to correct for it, I mean, the, the, the place, clearly the place to correct for it is not at the, you know, the Harvard admissions meeting, right, where they're trying to mm-hmm. figure out who to let in and how to let in more people who have been socially disadvantaged for the last 18 years. Clearly, we, we need resources to come in earlier and, and, and at the earliest point. What we run into, though, among wealthy people, and this is in Silicon Valley and you know anywhere else, really, where wealth is, has concentrated, is a fundamental distrust of government doing anything right. Right, so it's like, why should I pay more taxes if you know we, the government's just going to essentially burn up the money in a bonfire or you know buy you know, $4,000 toilet seats or, uh, you know, keep teachers who are completely incompetent employed for the rest of their lives. You know, I understand that skepticism or, or that despair, but the answer to that is not for the rich people to keep all of their money. 
and to to shave off you know a tiny percentage of it for philanthropy um, the answer is is better government right i mean th- there are certain problems that only government can respond to and it's mm-hmm. it, it can't be a matter of a few billionaires riding in to the rescue i mean we we need effective government as you know certainly if the pandemic has taught us anything it should have taught us that and you know for all the good bill gates is doing Bill Gates is not a replacement for the CDC, right? We need an effective CDC. So all the people who read too much of Ayn Rand need to understand that there are certain things the market can't do for us. And I mean, obviously, anything that the market can do best, we want it to do best. And let's privatize the hell out of all of those occasions. But there are clearly places where there is no substitute for an effective government, and we need to fund that government. And um, our allergy to redistribution is going to have to be cured here in the near term. You had a great podcast where you talked about the economy and the price we're willing to pay to reopen the economy. Give us your viewpoint there. Well, I mean, there are certain moral illusions here uh, that people are not correcting for. It's just because of, so the people who are most galled by the lockdown. You know, people who just think this is insane. We have overreacted to this this problem. You know, the COVID was a problem or is a problem, but you know, the the cure is now much worse than than the disease. The people who are in that camp are almost invariably making a false comparison. They're making a comparison between what the economy is like based on the lockdown and what the economy was like before anyone had ever heard of COVID-19. <laughs> That's not how to run the, the counterfactual. The two states of the world you have to compare is lockdown and what would have happened if we had not locked down at all, right? And just let this virus burn through our population. This is the, the pandemic paradox that you know, many of us foresaw, but you know, it, it has absolutely no rhetorical force to point this out. You know, the people who are looking outside their windows saying, look, only 80,000 people have died. This has been massively exaggerated as a problem. We were hearing that it might be a million or two million people dead. Well, 80,000 people have died with us locking society down to the degree that we have, right? The projections of a million dead, at the t- certainly at the time we had them, were not at all far-fetched. And the truth is, they're still not far-fetched if we just open everything up and let this thing roll through us. So the fact that we can't get to a ground truth with respect to the the case fatality rate here is another alarming fact. But at no point has it been rational to believe that COVID-19 is just the flu. Uh, And it's still not rational to believe that. And the people who think we could have just not locked down or we could have opened up much earlier and all of our economic problems are, are just a self-inflicted wound because we overreacted. They're just not thinking about what society would be like and may in fact be like in the coming months when you have just an explosion of, of disease and people don't want to go to restaurants, right? It's You're free to go to a restaurant, but nobody in their right mind wants to eat in one because you know, no meal in even the best restaurant in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco is worth rolling the dice on whether you're going to wind up on a ventilator for it. Uh, and that's, you know, so that's the situation we've been in all this time and, and we're still in it. And again, we're hamstrung by our inability to converge on a, a shared understanding 
of the basic facts of epidemiology. And we have the pedal to the metal, it seems, on producing vaccines. So you know, hopefully we'll, we'll break a record. But the fact that we are so far behind other developed societies like you know, Australia and New Zealand and South Korea and, you know, Singapore around just being able to live more normally and test and trace assiduously. I mean, that's just a, you know, society-wide embarrassment and politics has a lot to do with it. It definitely feels as if we're having two pandemics. If you're, we have the CNN and New York Times pandemic where we're not supposed to leave our houses until there's a vaccine. And then we have the Fox News pandemic where we're supposed to stop by the pub on the way to work. It, mm. it does feel as if there's a lack of nuance and a lack of recognition that the strategy for Montrose reopening might be different than the one for Manhattan. It's like, there's yeah. just no, it feels like there's just no shades of gray here. You're a neuroscientist and a philosopher. <laughs> Where do you find comfort when you find yourself stressed or, you know, what eases your pain? Uh, well, as you know, you know, meditation is something that I've spent a lot mm -hmm. of time, you know, practicing and, and focusing on. And you know, we spoke about this uh, on my podcast and, you know, I have a, a meditation app that I'm putting a lot of my resources into at the moment. And I mean, this experience, again, we, we, it's such a weird thing to have acclimated to it because it, it is such a strange experience we're all collectively going through and it's you know it's not one thing people are having very different experiences you know this is this is a historic moment and the, the fact that it is it's pushing us into a more palpable feeling of uncertainty on on so many fronts you know with respect to, to health and our, our finances and our social fabric everything is up in the air and so you know I, I have found really by sheer good luck that the kinds of things I've been paying attention to for many decades, you know, things like meditation and um, just thinking about what it takes to live a, a life that you don't regret, you know, that you don't regret at, at the end of, of your life, but that you, you don't regret at the end of any given day, right, where each day feels well lived. I mean, that, that's where my head has been for, for quite some time. You know, all of that is, is really paying off for me now. and. Um, so, I mean, it's not to say that I haven't been pushed around a little bit here, but I've been you know, happily pushed in the direction of feeling like I just want to walk my talk even more, you know, in my personal life, in my relationships, as a father, as, you know, someone who's philanthropically engage, engaged with the world. I mean, just, you know, just supporting causes that are not just important to me, but just obviously important and doing that in ways that corrects for the vagaries of my own compassion, right? I mean, when I decide something is worth supporting, now I'm inclined to support it in a way where I don't have to depend on my waking up each day and still feeling the same, you know, vivid connection to that cause, right? I mean, the, the, the clearest case for me happened before COVID, but I, I've drawn some lessons from that. So I, I had the the moral philosopher, Will McCaskill, on my podcast, who's is one of the... Um, the people who started this movement we we call effective altruism, which is um, a great fusion of kind of results-based managerial thinking and and ordinary philanthropy. I mean, they, they just look for what really works to save lives and mitigate human suffering in the world, and they kind of rank order all of those projects. And so he came on the podcast and he convinced me that some fairly unsexy causes are in fact the most important causes when when you're talking about a return on investment 
in mitigating you know death, unnecessary death and human suffering. And, and one of the things at the top of the list was malaria mitigation. I mean, just just putting out you know bed nets to the people who can most use them in you know places like sub-Saharan Africa and bringing down the the mortality from malaria from something like it was like 2.2 million people a year dying uh, not that many years ago and now we're down to something like 500,000 or 600,000 and most of the people who die are kids and and pregnant women from malaria uh, so I felt the ethical imperative of supporting that cause, you know, for the duration of that that conversation. But I, I recognize that I'm only human, and you know that kind of inspiration has a half life, right? And so, why should I? Why should the problem of malaria mitigation be dependent on me waking up each morning or each quarter, uh, once again inspired to help procure bed nets for people I will never meet? So, you know, in that case, I just automated my donation to the Against Malaria Foundation. So, you know, every month I give a significant chunk of money there, which is is frankly more than I would give. It's definitely more than I would give if I had to decide each month anew, you know, how much are you worried about malaria this month? You know, I'm just, I'm eager to correct for, you know, what are clearly, you know, software flaws in my own mind with whatever whatever levers I can pull and, and you know automating certain things are that, that's a kind of lever. And so I'm just kind of thinking these things through more and more now because I on some level have more time to um, put my house in order and and so it, it feels like a, a very fertile period ethically for me personally because I, I just feel like I can straighten things out that should have been straightened out a long time ago and and so that you know in, in that sense I'm, I'm using the opportunity fairly well. Last question, Sam as a Try to give us one piece of advice. When I say us, as a father and as a husband, what one piece of advice do you think or best practice would you want to share with other or other men that want to be better men, they want to be better husbands, they want to be better dads? I mean, some, some of the best advice or, or the, you know, the wisest thoughts sound trite when you just articulate them, but you know, when they're deeply felt or their, you know, their implications are, are lived, you know, they're, they're not tried at all. And you, and you know why we, we have these, these aphorisms, but I continually re rediscover this epiphany and it just matters each time, you know, in your relationships with people, and certainly the people you just referenced, I mean, the people who should be closest to you, your, your spouse, or your, your kids, I mean, your job really is just to love them. Right, I mean that—that's that, your fundamental job. It's not to change them, improve them, coerce them into doing what you think they should do to live better lives. I mean, there's, there's obviously there's some guidance as a parent you need to to worry about, right? You want to give them good information, but I, mean, I just know I, I was in the situation with with one of my daughters the other day where she was in a state, and it was a kind of thing that. Previously, I could have been sucked into worrying about and reacting to from a place of actually just being worried, you know, worried about her, worried about, you know, how she was developing, worried about my responsibility to make sure she's developing well, uh, just feeling like there's a, there's a problem here that I need to fix. And the the motive force behind, you know, fixing it had to be, you know, something like panic 
th- th- we got to fix this, right? So there's a kind of urgency that you know would normally have come through there. And for some reason, I was just you know I, I was just in a clearer headspace when I encountered her, you know, in the midst of this this problem. And I just I just recognized that all I really needed to do. I mean, what what she needed from me in that moment was just a completely non-coercive space that just communicates love, right? I mean, that's that's it. It was such a simple job, and I have failed at that so many times. And, you know, the, the difference was miraculous. I mean, the difference between it just hugging her without any other message and, and what I would have likely done previously, it was just enormous. And so, again, those are moments of kind of found wealth emotionally and ethically uh, that, you know, are not just local to, to one's intimate relationships, but it's, um, and I'm just finding more and more of those in this context. And so again, it's, if there's a silver line in here, you know, I'm finding it in places like that. So that, that registers in sort of a, a jarring way. Uh, one of my sons is is struggling more with this than the other. And I immediately do a ton of research around finding the right child therapist and setting up a Zoom call and getting them out of nature. I immediately come up, I immediately see this as a problem that as a successful head of household, I will address on every angle and marshal resources and intelligence and Google searches. And there is no silver bullet here, but the first line of defense is just uh, um, just to love them more. I, I think that's very, um, that just feels right. Sam Harris is an American author, philosopher, neuroscientist, and podcast host. Sam, best to you and yours. Stay safe. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. Great to talk to you. We trust you enjoyed our interview with Sam Harris. Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, or subscribe. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of The Prof G Show from Section 4 and Westwood One Podcast Network. Episode, episode, ten, episode, ten, episode, ten, episode, ten, episode, ten, episode, ten, 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 